Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Attention all personnel. Please clear the launching area. Fire. Fire. Oh, baby. I'll give it to you. That looks really good. Yes, it does. It's dead on. Okay, keep the chatter down in this room. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set, yeah. Welcome to a special December slash November 2023 edition of the Space Boffins podcast. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists and I'm Richard Hollingham. And I'm Sue Nelson. And if you thought our last double astronaut podcast couldn't be bettered, well, we've a treat for you. An interview that's never been broadcast in full. A conversation with a legendary astronaut, Frank Borman, who passed away last month age 95. Colonel Borman was the commander of Gemini 7 in 1965, a 14-day mission in the tiny Gemini spacecraft, but he's best known as commander of the first manned mission to the moon. Apollo 8 launched 55 years ago, December 1968, the first time astronauts had flown on the giant Saturn V rocket. A few days later, the crew, Borman, Jim Lovell and Bill Anders captured the famous Earthrise image as they orbited the moon and they read from the book of Genesis on Christmas Eve. Their return to Earth was the fastest anyone had ever travelled. Five years ago, to mark the 50th anniversary of Apollo 8, I made a BBC radio programme called Message from the Moon. And in partnership with the BBC World Service, Witness History programme was fortunate enough to interview Frank Borman. Now, we used audio and video clips of the interview in both programmes. That was the nature of of the programs. We were just after these these clips of just Frank Borman speaking, but we've never played the whole interview in full. And that's great because what people are going to hear is effectively an exclusive because when you make radio programs, you can only use edited highlights, basically, which often means, as you know, you have to leave some amazing stuff on the sort of the audio equivalent of the cutting room floor. So to have a full conversation with with Frank Borman that's um, really detailed and and interesting. And my goodness, what a guy, 95, hearing, you know, he's so on the ball. Uh, It is a treat. It's definitely a treat. I should do a little bit of a setup here. So firstly, should say Frank Borman didn't do many interviews. So we were really lucky to get this interview. We're not Your lucky. Charm, maybe. It, it was a, a combination of many people's charm, I have to say. <laughs> uh, I also should credit uh, producer Simon Watts uh, for this. So we did a huge amount of preparation. We spent a day preparing the questions because he has a bit of a reputation, Frank Borman. He's a little bit scary. So we were determined to not get our, our facts wrong. And I should also say that we were in a studio in London And he was in a hotel in Montana. 
with a sound engineer and with a cameraman. He's a little deaf. He had uh, communication issues. We had communication issues. And so there are points in this interview where it sounds like I'm just shouting at him <laughs> because I was shouting at him. It does sound like you're talking to the hard of hearing yeah. sometimes. But that's yeah, that wasn't his fault. It, no. it was the communication was pretty poor at points because we were connected on, I think this was probably on Skype or something. It was it was just insane. Anyway, so the conversation doesn't always flow. But that oh, aside, don't, it, don't even say that. It yeah. does flow. It's it sounds, it sounds great. Uh, anyway, that's enough of the, the setup. We'll chat more about it afterwards. But here in full is that rather wonderful interview with Colonel Frank Borman. Apollo Saturn launch control at three hours, 21 minutes, 27 seconds and counting. The spacecraft test conductor now has given a go for crew departure. We expect that astronauts Frank Borman, Jim Lovell and Bill Anders will be coming out in a matter of a few minutes. This is launch control. We were the first crew on a Saturn V, but the Saturn V uh, had a two unmanned tests before that. It was really a remarkable machine. It was, uh, it was still is the most powerful machine ever made by man. Seven and a half million pounds of thrust at liftoff. It was burning fuel at a prodigious weight. I, I think it was something like uh, 5,000 gallons a second, I, if I remember. It's been a long time ago. But it was a... Uh, a very impressive machine. And what was the launch like? Can you describe that? We have ignition sequence start. The engines are on. Four, three, two, one, zero. We have commit. We have, we have liftoff. At launch, the, uh, the noise was uh, extremely loud. We, we had not been able to uh, train for that, really. Uh, for the first several first couple of minutes, communication between the crew was almost impossible. There was also the usual shaking and rattling around of a launch vehicle. Jim and I had experienced that in the the Gemini launch vehicle. But the Saturn V was uh, more of everything. Much louder, a lot more vibration and shakiness, although the the G-forces were less. As I recall, in the first stage, we only got about four Gs, which is really not very many, but it was such a big a big machine that uh, it didn't accelerate nearly as fast as the uh, Titan did on our Gemini flight. And you said you could hardly communicate. How much vibration was there? How much feeling of power was there? Well, we felt, at least I felt, like we were on the uh, point of a needle, a very large needle. And uh, the the uh, tip of the needle, obviously, uh, uh, the vibrations are accentuated up there. So it was... Uh, I had a feeling of uh, being uh, along for the ride rather than being in control of anything. You mentioned the tests beforehand. They had not gone well. Were you concerned? Were you worried? The first test of the Saturn V had done very well. The second test did not do very well. There were engines shut down, and uh, it was a, uh, an unsatisfactory test. But I had a lot of confidence in the NASA engineers and in the team at uh, Huntsville. And uh, we went over all the fixes that they put in, in the booster. And honestly, uh, I was quite confident of the Saturn V. As a matter of fact, I was quite confident of the Apollo spacecraft, too. Uh, you know, uh, Bill Anders had figured that he had, what, I think, 30% of a mission success, 30% of uh, getting back, and uh, 30% of dying. 
I never felt that way. I felt we'd be back for sure at 100%, and I thought we'd do the mission. Just coming back to that, you said only 4Gs. Can you just give a sense of, of what that is like? Yes, when you, when you launch or when you re-enter, you're accelerating, and uh, a G-force, you multiply the number of uh, Gs by your weight, and you can tell how much you weigh. I suppose in the uh, spacesuit, I must have come close to 200 pounds, so... Four Gs, that would mean in reality we, uh, we weigh, I weighed 800 pounds. Uh, and it gets very hard to breathe, almost impossible to, uh, to raise your arms or to do any sort of a, a motion with your body. You also, your eyes flatten out, so you get like tunnel vision. It's an unusual feeling. And what is it like when that ends, when you're suddenly released from that force? We were at about 4Gs when the staging occurred, and the staging, the five big engines on the Saturn V cut off, and then uh, there was went from 4Gs to 0Gs, zero, zero for instance, and we were thrown forward in our, in our uh, suits and against the, safe, the safety belts. Then the second stage cut in, and we were thrown right back again. So it was a violent maneuver from the, from the standpoint of the crew and from the standpoint of the spacecraft. In terms of just going back before the launch, can you just explain what the aim of this Apollo 8 mission was and its importance? Well, the, uh, the Apollo 8 mission was designed to, uh, I think you'd say, bring together all of the works and studies that had been done in the years before about going to the moon. We were to simulate uh, in its entirety the spacecraft mission, which is to enter a lunar orbit and then come home uh, with a surface propulsion engine. We didn't have a lunar module, but the idea of, of deep space navigation, circumlunar navigation, trying to understand uh, what the mass cons were on the lunar surface that caused the uh, orbits of other unmanned uh, vehicles to uh, wobble, and then re-entering this, the atmosphere at 25,000 miles an hour. None of that had ever been done before. So we were, uh, we were sort of the trailblazers in, in that aspect. And, I mean, the, the crucial thing was that this was for the first time people, men, were leaving low Earth orbit. That's correct. This was the first time that uh, anybody had gone. I think that Pete Conrad got up to about 850 miles uh, above on, on one of the Gemini flights. But, of course, we went 240,000 miles all the way to the moon. Can you give us a sense of how important this mission was in order to land on the moon by the end of the decade? Well, our mission had been changed from a Earth orbital mission and moved uh, to a lunar orbital mission and moved uh, ahead by four months. And we only had four months to train for this new mission. And the basic reason for that was that the CIA had informed NASA that they thought the Russians we're going to have a circumlunar flight before the end of the year. Everyone forgets that uh, the Apollo program was basically a battle in the Cold War. It wasn't a voyage of exploration or scientific discovery. It was a political battle in the Cold War. We were obliged to change the, uh, the mission in order to uh, accomplish the, uh, the landing before the end of the decade that President Kennedy had promised. And to what extent did you feel that you were a, a soldier in, in that battle, if you like? Well, I thought that uh, we were Cold War warriors. Fortunately, we, we weren't involved in, uh, in shooting, but we were, uh, in, my part, in my opinion, 
the mission was extremely important, not only to the U.S., but to free people everywhere. How much of a, a risk was it to to make Apollo 8 a, a moon mission? Well, Apollo 8 was, a, uh, was an important mission uh, uh, for the lunar landing, but you got to remember all of them were. If Apollo 7 hadn't been successful, we'd have never been able to fly Apollo 8. Apollo 9 proved the lunar module. Apollo 10 proved it around the moon. So this was a very detailed and sequential series of events. And Apollo 8 was important, but so was 7, so was 9, and so was 10. What was your reaction when you heard that you were going to be flying the first mission around the moon? I was working with the spacecraft out in California when I got a call from my boss, Steve Slayton, to get back to Houston because he had something to talk over with me. Uh, and he couldn't do it over the phone. So I got an airplane, flew back to Houston. He got me into his... I knew something was different because he closed the door behind him. And uh, then he told me about the, the Soviet plans and about the change in the mission. And I was delighted. One in the hands were two in the bush. And our, our mission was... Uh, next year after another one. So uh, I was very pleased. Uh, and when I told Jim, and I knew Bill and Jim would be excited about it too. It was a happy event. Now, you were flying just with the command and service module, so no lander. If that engine had failed, you would have been stuck in orbit around the moon. There was no way out. Did you, did you think that through? The service propulsion engine, of course, had been tested many, many times, and it's true. Had it failed, we'd, I'd still be circling the moon, but uh, and that's not a desirable effect. But nevertheless, uh, look, I, I had studied that spacecraft and, and uh, the, the procedures so many times that I had absolute confidence in the, in the, in the vehicle and in the team that put it together. Chris Kraft, who was the really the mission director, the director of flight operations, was one of the great heroes of the, of the American space race. He's the only one still alive. And, uh, and, you know, when Chris said something, I believed it. And uh, I was, uh, I'd like, like to tell you that I was trembling, but I wasn't. I, I was confident it was going to work. Now, you've, you've reached Earth orbit. How much was there a sense of occasion or anticipation in pressing the button to head to the moon? After the uh, Saturn V had put us in orbit, we discarded the first two stages. The third stage remained with us. And then after we'd gone around once and a half, they re relit the third stage of the, uh, of the Saturn V. It had a single S2 engine of 200,000 pound thrust. And I think it, it burned for quite a while, but it got us up to the escape trajectory of 25,000 miles an hour. At 25,000 miles an hour, you escape the, the Earth's gravity and you're on your way to the moon. Uh, this flight, this particular rocket uh, stage was very, very smooth. It was uh, almost uh, low, low G, not very, not very much fast acceleration, but smooth and right on track. That journey from the Earth to the Moon, what was that like inside the the capsule with the three of you in that closed space? Well, the, the, the uh, Apollo spacecraft 
uh, by our standards, was very spacious. Uh, even though there were there were only three seats, you could sleep under the seats, and it was uh, it was quite comfortable. The interesting thing is when you get beyond the Earth of uh, some distance, uh, you look out one window and you can see the sun, and uh, look out the other window, it's completely dark. We had the other factor of in order to equalize the thermal load on the spacecraft, we went positioned it perpendicular to the sun, and then rolled it slowly. So we call it barbecuing. We did that in order to keep the, uh, the thermal load equal around the, around the spacecraft. But we, we really barbecued our way to the moon. I gather you experienced some sickness that worried the mission controllers on the ground. Yes, after I'd, I'd been up for quite a while, and I got nauseated and threw up, threw up, I blamed it at that time on a, on a 24-hour flu or a Secanol tablet that I'd taken to try to get some sleep. I think now it was probably a, a space adaptation, although I never I flew 14 days on Gemini. I never had a, a hint of it. The difference being, in Gemini, you couldn't move around. You were, you were sitting in a seat for 14 days. Here, when you moved around, your, your, uh, hearing your balance uh, was uh, impacted. I recovered quite rapidly, and uh, I think there was, you know, the doctors like to make a big thing of it. They always wanted to have a position of power in this in this program, and and basically, uh, it it went away quickly. Is there a, a part of that that astronauts never want to admit being ill as well? Well, I don't mind me admitting uh, admit being ill to anybody, except I didn't want, as I said, the doctors were trying to. Pres- to uh, assume a position of more importance than they really deserved in this uh, in this program, and uh, I, I could just see them saying, "Oh, we're going to cancel this now because uh, Borman's sick." That's what bothered me. In other words, I didn't trust the doctors. Could you uh, just describe getting into lunar orbit and, and what that involves? Well, we were we were aiming. The moon, of course, is moving as orbiting around the Earth about I think it's about three thousand miles an hour, and as I recall, we were going around two thousand miles an hour ourselves, and we'd come two hundred forty thousand miles. We we were aiming for a point sixty nine miles in front of a moving moon. It was one of the critical points of navigation was determining when you lost communication with the Earth. When, when the moon masked the, the, the uh, radio waves from the earth. And uh, I was, uh, again, totally impressed with the people on the ground because at the exact second they said we, should lo- we, we would lose communication, we lost it. Uh, and, of course, we never saw the moon. We just were pointing the spacecraft uh, on, on coordinates that had been given us from the ground and firing it. I think we fired the spacecraft engine something like four minutes to slow down enough to get in lunar orbit. About halfway through that, or three-quarters of the way through that, we looked down and there was the moon. Can you describe for me the, the first, or for us, the, that first impression of, of the lunar surface when you're suddenly so close? We were, of course, on the far side of the moon. People on Earth often refer to that as the dark side, but that's, uh, that's incorrect. On our mission, the back side, or the far side, was illuminated uh, more brilliantly from the sun than the sun, the side closest to the Earth, and the uh, lunar surface was terribly distressed. 
with uh, meteorites, uh, holes, craters, volcanic uh, uh, re- residue. Uh, it was uh, a very, very distressed place. And one of the things that, that struck me was there was absolutely no color. It was either gray or black or white. Uh, there, was, uh, there was absolutely no color on the lunar surface. Can you give me a sense of the appearance when you first saw the Earth from the moon? What, what was that moment? What happened? On about the, I don't know, the fifth or sixth revolution, we looked up and there was the Earth in the background coming over the lunar surface. And Bill Anders took the picture that uh, became a stamp, and I think it's probably one of the more significant pictures that hum- humans had ever taken. But the contrast between the distressed moon and the beautiful blue Earth was remarkable. The Earth was the only thing in the entire universe that had any color. Basically blue. You could see the white clouds, the, the brownish-pink plant, uh, continents. It was a uh, remarkable sight and a, a beautiful sight. We're very, very fortunate to live on this planet. Can you just describe that moment where you saw the Earth? Were you expecting it? No, as a matter of fact, I, hadn't, I don't think any of us had paid any attention to the fact that we would be uh, going all the way to the moon and be more interested in looking at the Earth. It was a, an unanticipated uh, uh, view, and uh, it, was, uh, it was dramatic. It sounds like there was a scramble for the camera. There was a sound, scramble for the camera, and uh, Bill Anders wanted I, I took a picture too, but mine was black and white. Uh, and Bill used a, a 250 millimeter lens uh, on his uh, a uh, Hasselblad's camera to get that picture. Bill was really the uh, the chief photographer on the mission. He he had studied it and he had all of his uh, uh, exposures planned. Did you have any idea how powerful that image would be when the film was processed? I did not have any idea how powerful it would be. Uh, all I knew was the beautiful Earth, and we were a long way from it. What about at the time? Was was there an emotional response to seeing that? Well, I, there was an emotional response to it. I think I think the the beauty of the Earth came through to all of us. Uh, and of course, as I said, we were a long way from home. It was Christmas, uh, and everything that we held dear was back on Earth. So you. Uh, you had to have an emotional uh, experience with that. Can you describe then what you did on that TV broadcast on Christmas Eve? Prior to the mission, I was informed that on Christmas Eve there would be a television cat broadcast from the moon and that we would have a larger audience than anybody had ever had before, any human had ever had before. And uh, so I said, well, gee, we're not, that's interesting. Uh, what should what do we do? What what's the plan? And I, I there's one of the remarkable moments of a free country. The only instructions I got was do something appropriate, and uh, that was uh, to me. Can you imagine if the Soviets had been up there? We'd be we'd be talking about Lenin and and Stalin and everybody else. This one was do something appropriate. And it sounds like that uh, that was an easy task, but the three of us. And our wives tried to f- figure out what would be appropriate, and we couldn't. So I asked a, a close friend of mine, uh, Cy Borgen, if he could come up with something. He was a sensitive, educated, uh, intelligent man. 
he couldn't come up with anything. So he asked a friend of his, Joe Leighton, who was a uh, war correspondent, had been a war correspondent. And uh, Joe couldn't come up with anything. As, as I understand the story, uh, he was sitting up all night throwing crumpled up paper away when his, uh, his wife walked by. And uh, his wife was a former French resistance fighter. Uh, free French fighter, and, and uh, she suggested to him, why don't you start at the beginning, Genesis? And that's how it all happened. Uh, the first ten verses of Genesis was, was uh, everybody agreed, the, the crew, we didn't publicize it anywhere else, but the crew, everybody, all of us agreed that was a, it was uh, the thing to do. And, and then, of course, while we were there, looking back at the moon and the earth, I think it was the perfect thing to do. Hey, why don't we start reading that thing, and then that would be a good place to end it. Well, we got to go into it very nicely. Why don't we go into sunset? Right. Or is it sunrise? This is sunrise, yeah. We are approaching lunar sunrise. We are now approaching uh, lunar sunrise. We started out with a little bit of a uh, commentary on the lunar surface, what it looked like to each one of us. And then uh, Bill Anders said, and the crew of Apollo 8 has a message, and we read from the... uh, Ten verses of, uh, of the first ten verses of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, "Let there be light," and there was light. And God saw the light; that it was good. And then I close with uh, from a crew of Apollo 8. Good night, good luck, Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you, all of you on the good earth. And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you. All of you on the good earth. That's it. I don't see any more. I just turned it off. You want it on again? Yeah, no, leave it off. Great. Great. Off? Yeah. Okay. Camera's off. Yep. Yeah, how, how can you beat that? Jeez, we just went into the Terminator right in front. Okay, let's get this big step back and even feel good. Here, here's this one. How did you feel reading that? Because it's it packs an emotional punch listening to it. We were quite convinced that it was the, the most appropriate thing to do because there's a sense of awe, in my part at least, that uh, this universe... Is bigger than all of us. That there, uh, it's too, uh, it's too orderly and it's it's uh, too enormous not to have some sort of divine creation. Did it make you feel any differently about God and about creation? Apollo Eight mission uh, didn't change my my attitude. I was uh, a Christian before I left. I am a Christian today. I uh, I'm a believer that uh, that man. Uh, is a, uh, a flawed individual and that, that our, our salvation depends upon Jesus Christ. That's the way I was before and that's the way I am now. Did it make you think about our place in the universe at all? No, I, I was concentrated on the moon and on our mission. This was the, uh, the overwhelming... My, my main goal in this Apollo 8 flight was to make sure that we did it perfectly. If there anything went wrong, I didn't want the crew to be the ones that were to blame. So there was a, there was an enormous feeling on my part for perfection, 
And although we we didn't, I don't think anybody ever achieved perfection. Well, we, we accomplished all of our missions and came home safely. And I wasn't thinking about our place in the universe then. I was just thinking about getting back to the the earth in one piece. How were you as a commander then? Well, I <laughs> look there were there were two good friends of mine on board. It was hardly a uh, command situation. We were all oriented the same thing. We'd all trained together. And uh, except for trying to get Anders and Lovell to take a rest once in a while, I, th- there wasn't much command involved in it. Everybody was d- doing their job, and we were all on an equal status. Now, the crucial moment comes when you need to leave lunar orbit. Can you just tell me the the importance of that burn to get you out of of the orbit of the moon? Yes, the... Uh, Earth orbit insertion uh, burn was accomplished behind the moon, on the far side of the moon, out of touch of the ground. So we uh, we were on our own there, but uh, we were given the coordinates to uh, point the spacecraft at. And of course, we'd, we'd done this many, many times in a simulator. And uh, I, I won't say that that was a moment of, uh, of a lot of anticipation on, on my part, and I'm sure on Jim and Bill's too. It was quite a long burn. But again, it was smooth and quiet. And uh, at the end of the burn, uh, Jim uh, Lovell, who was the navigator, basically uh, announced that our, our uh, velocity had increased enough so that we had had a good burn and we were on our way home. Was that a relief? I suppose you could count it as a relief. As I said, there was a lot of anticipation uh, and it was a moment of, uh, of the truth. As I said before, if that hadn't lit, we'd still be there. So there was a, certainly a, a moment of relief when we uh, learned that we had had a good burn and we were on our way home. Now, you spent Christmas as a crew on board the spacecraft. What was Christmas like? Well, Christmas on board the spacecraft was a, a little bit different because uh, Deke Slayton had uh, anticipated Christmas dinner and put in food that was a, a new type of uh, food packaging that we hadn't experienced before. So we had our best meal on the flight on Christmas Day and Christmas Eve. I had been against taking those, uh, using that, mood for the, that food for the whole flight because it was just another opportunity to uh, have something new go bad. But I was really glad uh, uh, to experience it. I think we had turkey and gravy, the whole works, on Christmas. He also smuggled aboard... For us, didn't smuggle aboard, but put aboard three uh, mission shots of brandy, but we didn't drink that. I, I, I would just be absolutely, if anything gone wrong, even if it had nothing to do with the brandy, that would be blamed. So we, we brought it home. I don't know what happened to mine. It's probably worth a lot of money now. Do you get any sense when you're coming back from the moon of the speed you're going at towards Earth? You don't get the sense of motion until you get closer to the Earth. And then you can see that the Earth is getting larger. Uh, from the moon, you could hold out our, our arm and cover the uh, Earth with our thumbnail. But then as you got closer and closer, of course, it became larger and larger, occupied more of the, of the windshield. So uh, th- there is really no sensation of velocity or speed in, in space, except as you get close to something for a reference. When you commit to re-entering the Earth's atmosphere... What's that moment like, and what is re-entry like? Because you were going faster than anyone ever before. 
we were going faster, around 25,000 miles an hour. And uh, we positioned the, uh, the spacecraft uh, according to the way we had, uh, had been trained. And what happened, uh, the spacecraft dug into the atmosphere. It had lift, even though it had no wings. And then in order to, uh, when it came to the maximum G in thermal load, it started back out again. And then before you escaped the atmosphere, you rolled over 180 degrees and then came back in. Typically, when you're going around the Earth, you fire a retro rocket to slow down. Here we use the atmosphere to slow us down. So it was a, uh, from, the stand, from a physical standpoint, is the most arduous part of the mission because you're pulling six Gs for quite a long time. It gets hard to breathe. Uh, and uh, it was, uh, you know, I'd like to tell you that it was superior piloting on my part, but it was all done on the autopilot. <laughs> Do you still recall that, 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 what that was like coming back into Earth? I do recall it because uh, not only are you pulling a lot of Gs, but when you uh, encounter the atmosphere, you ionize it, and it's a, it was like flying inside of a, of a neon light or a blowtorch. It was, uh, it was the, uh, the most dramatic part of the flight. And you descend then on parachutes. What's it like when you hit the ocean and, and immediately afterwards? Well, we... we uh, I think around 100,000 feet, you, you pull out, or 30,000 feet, I can't remember exactly, you put a drogue chute. That helps us keep you from oscillating. And then around 10,000 feet, three big parachutes came out. We were, we were landing before sunrise, so it was hard for us to, uh, to tell whether they had gone out or not. But uh, the, our speed, our, our rate of descent slowed considerably. And when we hit the water, we did it with an enormous... Uh, Whack. I guess we must have hit a swell, and uh, the parachutes tipped us over. So we, by the time I got them released, uh, we were floating upside down in total darkness in the Pacific Ocean, uh, going around and around and up and down. And there were sharks as well, I think. We were floating upside down in perfect darkness. But NASA had a solution for that, too. I pushed the switch. And uh, an air compressor inflated three large, inflated three large balloons, and we popped back right up again. But the uh, spacecraft was still a lousy boat, and we had to wait about two hours till daylight because the Navy didn't want to put divers in when there were sharks around. What was that part like? Because you were not a Navy man. No, and as I said, the the Apollo was a beautiful spacecraft and a rotten boat. Because not only were you going like this, but it's going around a little bit too. So I got I got seasick and threw up all over Anders and Lovell. And I, I still hear about that to the day. What was that like then when you were finally you finally get to open the spacecraft hatch? I think one of the most uh, joyous parts of anybody's life is doing a job well. And when we stepped off the helicopter onto the aircraft carrier with the uh, sailors cheering and the flag waving. Uh, it, was, uh, it was a remarkable feeling of humility, but yet of accomplishment. And is it right that you also shaved on the way from the space capsule to, to the deck, so you looked smart? I did. I, on, our, on our Gemini flight of two weeks, 
Uh, I, I don't have a very good beard, scraggly beard, and I, I took a, a big ribbing for a long time about that. So I got one of the uh, one of the helicopter people to put a, bring an electric shaver for me. So I stepped off looking fresh. Anders and Lovell looked the bedeviled. <laughs> um, just in terms of the the mission itself, and obviously you know the the mission went perfectly. What did that mean for the Apollo program? Well, Apollo 8, as I said, together with uh, all the other preliminary flights, were very, very important to keeping the commitment of the president to do it before the end of the decade. This was basically a, a battle in the Cold War, and it had enormous consequences. So there was a lot of pressure. And there was a lot of uh, anguish. It was a great place to work, NASA at that time was, because nothing really mattered but the mission. And the mission came first, last and always. So I was, uh, I was, and I am still in, in uh, admiration for the people, not just the ad- astronauts. We got most of the credit, but there were 400,000 people that made that work. And I was, uh, I was very, very proud of them. At what point did you realize the significance of those pictures you'd captured and the lasting legacy of Apollo 8? I've never thought much about it because, as I said, it wasn't just an individual flight that made the difference. Uh, it was a, uh, a sequence of flights, and it was a great accomplishment by uh, a, an awful lot of people who sacrificed an awful lot of their personal lives to make sure this worked. In terms of the Earthrise picture, it has lasted. Do you think still think about that that was you know, something that you helped achieve? I, I, to be honest with you, I, I don't really think about the legacy of Apollo 8. The, 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 the preliminary flights got the ball into the red zone, close to the goal line uh, in, in American football, but Apollo 11 took it over the goal, and that was the focus point. And frankly, after Apollo 11 was successful, uh, I had no more interest in the program. I, I, I joined to uh, help fight a battle in the Cold War, and we'd won. At what point did you decide this would be your last mission? Well, as I said, I had joined NASA to participate in the, the uh, Cold War efforts to, to beat the Russians or the Soviets. And uh, it was clear to me that Apollo 8 was successful. As a matter of fact, I was asking the press conference after we got back when, when the lunar landing would take place. I said in Apollo 11. And I, uh, there's no, no way that I was going to be able to rotate from 8 to 11. I had never been in a lunar module simulator, uh, so I hadn't, I, hadn't, uh, I hadn't done the training for it. And I, was, I, I wasn't anxious. Like Jim Lovell was very anxious to do it again, and he went on Apollo 13. Uh, but uh, I'd done my task, and it's time to move on. What do you think of NASA's plans to return to the moon? I haven't kept close touch of it, but I believe it makes a lot more sense than trying to go to the Mars uh, uh, directly without uh, having uh, some experience in, uh, in habitation on a, on a foreign sur- object. Do you have a, f- a sense of frustration that it's, it's taken so long? I mean, 50 years to start thinking about going back. No, I don't have any sense of frustration about going back. I think, it's, uh, I think human beings will, I hope they will always continue to press the envelope, expand the envelope. But, uh, you know, going to Mars is infinitely more difficult than going to the moon. 
And not only that, then trying to uh, exist on Mars is also much more difficult than the moon. When these people uh, talk about colonizing the Mars, uh, I think here Stephen Hawkins was talking about, I, I don't believe that they've taken into account the, uh, the difficulties the human being would have trying to uh, exist, uh, or let, let, let alone a civilization on Mars. So I'm, I, I think there may be one time a, a, a scientific output there, like that you have at the South Pole, but I don't believe that Mars will ever be colonized by humans. As part of the crew of the first crew to go to the moon, what would be your advice to any astronauts going back? Is there anything you think they should must do or must think about? You know, I, I wouldn't be... Uh, I'm an old geezer now, 90 years old. I wouldn't have the temerity to offer any advice to these young people that know everything. Any advice to them about maybe just about achievement? My advice to any youngster is to do your best in whatever you've done and to be willing and, and actually anxious to subordinate your own desires to the good of the uh, mission that you're involved in. We did our job. We did it well. We won the race. Colonel Frank Borman, who died earlier this month at the age of 95. Initial thoughts? I really liked it. I think the... You know, the typical sort of astronaut (laughs) no-nonsense stuff um, came through. And that sort of paucity of words to describe something that could be really, really bad, sort of along the lines of, Houston, we have a problem. I think it was that way um, when you said about the question about, you know, there was no way of landing while you were up in the the service propulsion It could have been stuck in orbit around the moon. And he said, what's that? I'd still be circling around the moon. And he said... That's not a desirable effect. That's <laughs> like something a computer would say. Well, I think, you know, the fact he just described himself as a Cold War warrior. I mean, that was it. You know, he was a he was in in this war. Mm-mm. That was his contribution to the war. And that was it when he'd finished the mission, you know. Yeah. No, it was um I I I also quite <laughs> it was pretty obvious that how little regard he had for the doctors. And I know that's common about all the uh, the astronauts at that time because they saw them as the enemy, because they could ground them. They could stop their dreams. They could prevent their progress from test pilot to astronaut. But he really (laughs) sounded... He was so dismissive, trying to assume a position more important than they really deserved. I mean, you... So, um, yeah, and I like the term barbecuing. I'd not heard that before. Yes, it had a really nice Rolling turn of space phrase. I mean, considering it was so long ago when he, he, he'd taken part in that mission, it was all also also vivid. Yes. But, yeah, yeah, very straight down the line. Now, um, he, he doesn't laugh much in the interview, but I just wanted to I, – I think I explained at the beginning how we had the, the hearing issues. Yes. So partly his fault, partly the line, partly the tech setup, which was – really complicated mm. which I won't go into the detail but at one point uh, he couldn't hear us and uh, let me just play you a clip oh okay feel okay that's yeah no, I'm sorry the the earpiece fell out of my ear and I didn't know it <laughs> that's quite alright I uh, can, can you... a, that, 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 one, that one wasn't your fault <laughs> but the rest of them have been look we're not NASA we're just the BBC <laughs> <laughs> See, look, I made him laugh. Um, I made him laugh. Talked about the appearance of the moon. 
made him laugh. I, I also like that bit when he said, I never thought I would be going to the moon and be more interested in looking at the earth. Mm. I like that bit as yeah. well. And my other thing that I cannot help but wonder, and I really want to know the answer to is, what became of that untouched brandy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like he says, that would be worth oh a fortune. Oh my goodness, can you imagine? Someone must have it. I mean, yeah. someone must have taken it. Oh, maybe, maybe what somebody did was just bring it down and drink it, you know, and then you regret can, it. You can understand that. You know, he, he flew. They flew a perfect mission. Mm. A really, you know, on paper, risky mission. In an untried rocket. I mean, it's extraordinary. Well, and that, it shows the pressure the whole program was under and the pressure to win it also the program is... to get there first. And so you can understand why they didn't want to drink. You know, Oh, and... gosh, yes. But also you could understand why they got test pilots because you need that, that right stuff, that attitude of, yeah, I'm going to do something dangerous. What of it? You know, obviously it's calculated risk. Um, I, I'm not sure any of those men had a death wish, for instance, but it was a calculated risk, and they, they're incredibly brave. Uh, yeah, it's um, yeah, it was lovely. I think it's a really great tribute. Yeah, really, to, to really, Frank really pleased to have that, and nice to have a full, long-length interview with him. That is, as we said, that's. A bit of an exclusive. No one's heard that interview before in its entirety. And uh, it's a shame we had to wait for his death to play it. But but that's uh, a tribute. There's a tribute for it. It's funny. It only occurred to me that I thought, hang on, I might have have the whole interview somewhere and never actually used it. Because what we did, the way these things work technically as you know, mm. we record both ends of the interview. So we were connected, I think it was Skype at the time. I think it was Skype, something like that. We were connected. Which you don't normally use Skype. No, it was no. pre-Zoom. Oh, and also pre, probably, pre, was it pre-pandemic? Then, yeah, pre, pre-pandemic, yeah, pre-Zoom. Funny, we've changed now, haven't yeah, you, yeah. in terms of what... Yeah, what so I think it was connected with use. Skype. And so I could see him, and that was all the sound issues as well. So he had this earpiece, which, as you heard, heard um, fell out. Every so often. So you had this this setup, but we recorded at both ends. So had a sound engineer at the other end recording his answers, and I was recording my oh, questions in good. the BBC studio. And there was never any necessity to hear my questions no. in the programs I made or the, the the TV content we also produced from that. We never needed my questions, so I never stitched the two sides of the interview together. We, oh, I think we better stress as well, you, you know, in case anybody listening from the BBC thinks, "Hold on, what are you doing using other?" We, we, <laughs> it was our program. We, oh, it was our yeah. program. We paid for half of that. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I paid. <laughs> yeah. I paid for that. Oh, you, you have no idea how expensive American sound engineers in Montana are. Uh, I, I can have a pretty good guess, <laughs> having had to. Uh, Pay for them I, for I, other programs. I, when I had, when I received his bill, I went, <gasps> oh my goodness! Yes, I think yeah. I, th- I don't think America realizes, do they? How cheap how, we how are! How cheap we yes, are! And how little we anybody gets paid compared to Americans. It's, it's why so a, it's many a different world. Yeah, isn't it? it's why so many UK uh, production podcast production houses are based in the UK yes. and not the US. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, by the way, that uh, award-winning program Did I made award-winning. Award award winning, yeah, yeah. Uh, I made about Apollo eight and astronaut. It's actually about astronauts and religion. Uh, it's called Message from the Moon. It's still available on BBC Sounds and the BBC website. Uh, the two versions. My favourite is the Radio 3 version because it doesn't have a presenter. 
Um, it's just <laughs> it's just music and the astronauts and and lots of um, the sounds of of the of the mission. Um, you can find that uh, by googling "message from the moon" BBC Radio Three. Do I should say that very much slower, shouldn't I? BBC Radio, Radio 3. Three. Yes, and then just leave a gap. <laughs> Only UK listeners will get that. <laughs> Only UK listeners will get that about the nature of Radio, Radio 3, 3, where a four-minute pause is the norm. Yes. Right. Uh, do get in touch with any thoughts about Space Boffins and especially the uh, Frank Borman interview. You can email us pod at podcast at spaceboffins.com or get in touch with us here at Boffin Media. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Um, we'll More be... Facebook than Twitter now. Yeah, because... yeah, well, I'm... It's broken. Twitter is broken, isn't it? Uh, it's. I find it difficult. People that I've been, you know, we've been following. Um, it's just like you don't see their feeds yes, anymore. Right. It's like, it's hold gone. on, I, we follow loads it's of space gone. content. Where's yeah. it gone? It, yeah. it's Yes, it's it's a bit of a crazy, crazy world at the moment. And um, I suppose all we can say is let's hope that 2024 is going to be a more globally peaceful one. Than 2023. I think we'll do some space looking ahead in January mm-hmm. because Artemis. Oh, yes. And also we'll, fingers crossed, have a report on um, moonwalkers and an interview with Chris Riley. Oh, yeah, we will, won't we? Yeah. Hey, so we're, we're, we're going to see that in early, yeah, yeah. early Jan. Yeah, so, um, yeah, that'll be really good fun. And that's based on... Um, it uses a lot of the images that were digitally remastered by Andy Saunders, who you can also hear on a previous podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Check, check us out. Mm. Thanks for listening.